So here's, here's one of the things that, I ha- that uh, is going to happen in 2 Corinthians that's happening in all the letters, primarily, especially of Paul's. And that is Paul's apostleship is being challenged. Yeah. So remember in 1 Corinthians, there are four different divisions in the church. We follow Cephas. So you can imagine what those who follow Cephas think of Paul, right? Cephas, and no, and no, by the way, they don't call him Peter. They call him Cephas or Cephas, his Aramaic name. We're the Jewish Christians who follow the Jewish apostle Peter. And you can imagine they have tremendous animosity towards Paul. And so they don't even accept him as an apostle. So Paul's apostleship is being challenged. And 2 Corinthians is by far the most autobiographical of all of Paul's letters. He has to simply defend his apostleship because the church is simply not accepting what he's saying and, and who he is. Now, there's a lot going on in the background. And if you read uh, your textbook on, um, on 2 Corinthians, you'll kind of get a little bit of the background of what's going on there. Uh, but Paul changed his travel plans. Uh, circumstances caused him to change his travel plans. He, went over, he made a, an extra trip to Corinth. Uh, and, and, that, and see, he's not a man of his word. He changes his mind. Anything he does, and some of you guys in pastoral ministry know how it works, right? You can't win for losing. Because no matter what you do, somebody's not going to, right? Yeah, all right. So that's where Paul's at. He can't, he simply can't please everybody. So by far the most autobiographical letter, at the end of the letter, you see him actually boasting. And he's like, look, you know, I, I feel like a fool for doing this. But you're forcing me to do this. Am I an apostle? Have I not suffered more? Have I not been in prison more? Beaten more severely? In danger here, in danger there. Uh, and this is his apostolic claim. Now remember, for them, in the ancient world, if you're an apostle, you're revered. Right? You're an icon. And for Paul, if you're an apostle, you suffer. You're persecuted. You're in prison. Remember, the kings and the Gentiles, Jesus says, lorded over those in authority, but not so with you. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So now Peter, Paul's like, he doesn't look like an apostle because he's suffering in a prison, because he's homeless, or because, you know, right? And, 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 and Paul's answer is, this is what actually qualifies me <laughs> as an apostle. I've suffered more than anyone else. What's that? I'm turning green. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's another story. All right. Um, so note the past where Paul says, look, I, I had a messenger of Satan that was, that was, that was going to torment me. Three times I said, Lord, take it away from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Yeah. Suffering, remember in Acts chapter 9 when Ananias is going to go lay hands on Paul. Uh, remember Paul's blind on the road to Damascus and they lead him by hand to Damascus and then God appears to Ananias and says, hey Ananias, I want you to go lay hands on that Paul guy. And then I was like, uh, Lord, I know you're like God, and, and you, know, you, you know everything. I'm just wondering if you looked, overlooked something here. You know why this guy's in town. He's here to arrest people like me. And the Lord answers Ananias and says, I know, but this man is my chosen instrument to take the gospel before the Gentiles and before the Jews and before the kings, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Yep. Suffering was Paul's calling card. It was his proof uh, of his credentials. All right, now, one other thing in 2 Corinthians that we'll point out, and, and I skipped it in 1 Corinthians, but the point is this is not the only place to find it. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, and I have it up on the screen here. We often use this passage in references to sexual immorality. Uh, we often use it in our churches. 
it's not, it's, oh, it's not on. There we go, thanks. It's going to take a little while for it to come up then. So just open up in your Bibles, if you will. Um, uh, but in 2 Corinthians 6, we often use it in reference to the fact, well, there you go. If you're um, a Christian, you shouldn't marry a non-Christian. Oh, yeah. right, this is the this is text. But I want you to notice this text for another reason. That's this. Paul says, um, verse 14, don't be bound together with unbelievers. Verse 15, what harmony does Christ have with Belial, which is an, another name for the devil? Uh, what, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what has agreement, has the, has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God has said, and note the NIV, New American Standard, how, how it puts in all caps, this is a very important passage that it's quoting, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, now let me stop for a second. That's a quote from Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. Leviticus 26 is the covenant passage of God makes with Israel. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. If you obey my laws, I'll bless you. And here's what the blessings include. Long life, good land, cattle will be right, safe from your neighbors, and I'll be your God, and I'll be with you, and I'll walk with you. Now the word walk with you reminds a, a reader of Genesis 3. God walked in the Garden of Eden, right. right, in the cool of the day. So it's this Eden language, this temple imagery of Eden language. I'll be your God and I'll be with you. Remember, if God's with us, that's by definition a temple. Now we know it's temple language because Paul says right before, we are the temple of God. And then he quotes Leviticus 26. Now he's also quoting Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, and we may look at this when we get to Revelation later on, in a few weeks. Ezekiel 37 is quoting Leviticus 26. Okay, so here we go. Leviticus 26, covenant language, reminding the Israelites of God's dwelling in Eden, and promising them that just like in Eden, when I walk with Adam and Eve, I will walk with you, and I'll bless you if you obey my laws. I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. And Paul quotes that passage and says, fulfilled in the church in Corinth. Because the Christians are indwelt by the personal Holy Spirit. Look what he says next. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Right? That's the definition of, of um, clean and unclean. Right? Be, be clean. Be, it's, it's temple language, holiness language. And, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Now look at chapter 7, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Right. Oftentimes when we read our Bibles, we'll, we'll, you know, if, we're, if we're really good Christians, we read a chapter a day. Okay. And, you know, and, we, and we use a chapter breaks and we stop there. But note the therefore here is connecting what he just said with what follows. Therefore, because you are temples, and because the Spirit of God dwells in you, come out from them and be holy. Right? That's chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, 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 perfecting ourselves, uh, perfecting holiness in, in the fear of God. Now you'll see the same idea in 1 Corinthians 6 also, that we're temples. And what you'll also see is that actually in, in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, uh, chapters 3 and 4, and I won't, I'm, not, I'm just not going to go into it, because if I did, I'll, I'll get stuck again. Um, what you're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 is garden temple language. Okay? Um, Apollos, uh, uh, I planted, Apollos watered. That's garden language. And then you're growing up into a temple of God. 
So it's garden, temp- and remember Eden was the temple. So this is going to make sense if we understand this biblical story that I started with week one. If you understand this, a biblical story, God dwelt amongst his people in Eden, well, that was the goal, Adam and Eve were expelled from that, Revelation 21 and 22, Eden restored in a perfected, glorified way. Everything in the middle is how is God's eternal, divine, holy presence going to be restored amongst his people, or better yet, how is his people going to be restored to his holy presence? Answer, in Jesus, who himself was a temple of God, who left us and said, it's for your good that I'm going, because if I go, I'll send you the Spirit, and he'll be with you always. And the Spirit comes and makes us temples, and therefore, that's why Paul can quote, and you see this imagery, how it just runs and bleeds together. All right? And it's temple, garden, imagery, and therefore the implication is, therefore be holy. Now I say that, which we'll look at in 1 Peter, I believe, next week, uh, for, for this reason. We talk about holiness, and we think, oh, that's Leviticus. That, that's like Old Testament stuff. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to be all holy then. And the answer is, no. In order to enter the temple, you had to be holy, right? Different degrees of holiness and cleanness, the closer you get to the temple. But now, we are the temple. Remember Romans? We're the sacrifice and the temple. So holiness is maybe even more significant in the New Testament church than even in the old. I, I mean, I wouldn't say it that way, but, but if, I, if I want to stress it, you know, exaggerate it a little bit, uh, we simply can't deny the role of holiness in God's people. Now, holiness is not, you know, deistic, therapeutic moralism. Mor- it's not moralism. Be good for the sake of... It's what, holiness is for what? Because God's presence dwells within me, and I am to make him known. It, it's this missional holiness, and the holiness is not being good. The holiness is being Christ or growing like Christ, which we're going to see in Colossians here in a few minutes. Okay, any questions on First and Second Corinthians? So basically, Second Corinthians would just be Paul just having to go back and write again. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So, so Second Corinthians is, so if you'll notice in Corinthians, I didn't give you any of a, he wrote the letter here at this date and time, and I, I did in the handouts. Mm-hmm. But in order to really understand 2 Corinthians, you have to understand the historical context, what's going on, the problems that, that we told him about 1 Corinthians, mm-hmm. and the fact that he changes his plans. And for us to really filter all that out, it would take us like 30 minutes to do it. It's, it's not relevant. But it's, uh, it's, it's Paul defending that he's an apostle and explaining why he's done what he's done and, had, and didn't do this, but did that instead and changed his plan and changed that plan there, uh, etc. Yeah. It, it's kind of the, the, the less least spiritual book of the New Testament, if I can put it that way, with air quotes, if, if you know what I mean. It, it doesn't have this great preaching stuff that you get in Romans or in Colossians or in Ephesians type of thing. So. Do, do we have any information as to how that book was taken by those he was justified? Excellent question. Excellent question. All right. So the, the first answer is this. Is, uh, the question is, do we have any, uh, um, how, how is it received? Second Corinthians is a, whoo, oh my goodness, thank God. Um, what happens in 2 Corinthians is Titus has come back and given us great news that you have received what we have said. So it's 1 Corinthians is the biggest concern. And if you're not aware, 1 Corinthians is not Paul's first letter to Corinth. He refers in 1 Corinthians to a letter he had already written. And we don't have that letter. So he's already written to them. That's why when he says, expel the wicked brother from among you, I've already told you all this stuff. I told you when I was there. I wrote a letter. You still didn't do it. And, and, and it appears that he may have written another letter, a third one. And it was harsh. And 
that might be the letter, not first Corinthians, not what we call First Corinthians, but his third letter, that Titus comes back and says, oh, good news. I'm so glad to hear. Here, all right, great. I'll be back soon. So we, we know in 2 Corinthians that it was well received. But the other thing that we can say, and this is kind of a quest, the same question with the book of Philemon. Hey, Paul's telling Philemon to receive Onesimus. What happened? If he didn't receive Onesimus back well, the book would never have made it in the Bible. You could almost assume that it was well received by the church, including Philemon, and that's the reason why it was preserved. So I, I think that's a fair assessment. So, uh, uh, okay? You're